You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. You're listening to episode 154 of the Soul Forge Podcast. Welcome to the Soul Forge, a place of silent mystery, quiet contemplation, and outright mayhem. Join your host, Sean Vanderloo, as he guides you through the adventures of living. Together, we'll talk about life and love, sex and dating, joy and heartache, memories and loss, and so much more. Don't worry, it's not nearly as pretentious as it sounds. Get ready for life, the universe, and everything on The Soul Forge. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Soul Forge podcast with your host, me, Sean Vanderloo. Now, as you may have noticed, there's been a few let's shall we say, heavy episodes over the last few weeks. We're going to do something completely different for you this time around, and I hope you enjoy it a lot. In previous episodes, you've heard me recite or read some of the poetry that I wrote back in the day. This week, I'm going to read you a short story that I wrote uh, for the culminating project of my creative writing class that I took in third year of university. And let's see what I got here. I've got a a book that uh, I had to get professionally bound, and I had poems in it, and uh, something called the Trilestin Religion, which was a religion that I made up, which I may read to you one of these days. Uh, This was handed in April 9th, 1998, so the story that I'm about to read to you would have been written probably March of that year, or knowing me, uh, April 8th, because I had to get it right in. I can't remember, that's uh, 22 years ago. But anyway, this is a story, a short story, that uh, I called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And I had to incorporate all the names of the classmates that I had into the writing. I I don't know if I chose to do that, or if that was part of the assignment, or or whatever it was. I think it's an okay story. I I did have aspirations to be a novelist, or an author, or something. But I guess I was too lazy, or or whatnot, and I never continued my writing. But I'm going to read you this. It's, uh, It's a bit of a... I don't know if creepy is the right word, or just kind of, hmm. But anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy it. would love to hear your feedback. I'm going to go ahead and play a promo for a podcast here on the ESO Network, and then I'm going to get right into the story. Are you one of millions of people worldwide with compulsive geekiness, feeling isolated and alone? Do you wish there were people that understood the thoughts and feelings associated with Geeky Flare Up? There is hope and a treatment program that can help. Ask your podcast service or ESO network provider if the Nerd Bliss podcast is right for you. Or go to nerdblisspodcast.com today. Side effects may include butthurt, movie quotes, nostalgia, warp speed, becoming for clamps, becoming a brony, appreciation of cats in the movie, pantyhose, asking God what he needs with a starship, donut, muffin, or bagel, that shoelaces, improved sense of rhythm, aiming to misbehave, nudity, and random arbitrary lists. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Sean Vanderloo, 1998. A light misty shower fell from the darkened sky, moistening the endless rows of picnic tables set for the day's events. The annual celebration held every July in the town of New Lambden was a special time. For the past several decades, the employees of the town's major industrialists, the Stuarts, threw a party to commemorate the city's growth. For the last seven years, the festivities had coincided with the Stuarts' granddaughter, Joanne, Annie as she was known by the town, birthday. 
The Odes Shoe Factory workers were throwing the party this year. Each year, the amusement was sponsored by the employees of one of the Stewart's companies, which also included Korsh Oil Works and Valin Catering. Valin Catering always supplied the food for the party, which usually consisted of hot dogs, hamburgers, and potato salads. In the early 1960s, when the Stewarts came to New Lambden, the town had a population of under 4,000 people. The Stewarts bought out bankrupt businesses, changed their management structure, and turned the companies into prosperous moneymakers. The names of the businesses were left alone to keep the sense of community shared by all, and local townsfolk were hired instead of outsiders. The Stewarts had nearly 4,500 of the town's populace on the payroll. Some included the original owners of these businesses, yet most were simply people who had always lived in town. The Stewarts were reluctant to hire people from other towns because they felt it violated the sense of community they were trying to promote. Over the next 40 years, the town grew and expanded, reaching a population of 13,000 by the mid-1990s. New Lambden was a valley municipality situated between two much larger cities. Mount Tremblay, 17 kilometers to the east, had a population of over 280,000. Ambler Acres, a retirement community with a population of 147,000, lay 22 kilometers to the northwest. Granger Lake supplied water from the southern end of the town, being fed by the Bilyeu, a glacial mountain river which ran through New Lambden, slicing it in half. By noon, the rain stopped falling and the sun peeked out from behind billowing grey clouds. A, va a vaporous haze rose from the ground and made its way toward the lake. Several generations of employees were on their way, courtesy of Coistra Deluxe Shuttle Services, to the Stewart Spread. The first convoy of buses crossed Hunt Bridge recently completed by Hebert Construction Technologies Limited, and turned south onto Young Street. At 12.30, 250 people were milling about the farmyard. Over the next several hours, the other 750 laborers of the shoe factory were expected. As always, it was a chance to socialize and show appreciation to the family who employed them. In all of the confusion of people, food, and traffic, Annie had wandered away from the farm. At 2 in the afternoon, she trampled through Glen Meadow, crossed Hunt Bridge, and found herself heading west on Main Street. She soon spotted a friendly-looking older man who was wearing a green and brown plaid suit that belonged to another decade. He was slowly treading a path away from her on the other side of the street. His liver-spotted hands were clasped behind his slightly bent back, and he was whistling the tune from The Andy Griffith Show. On his face was a large, toothy, broad smile between two rosy and weather-lined cheeks. Protruding from his breast pocket was a crisp white handkerchief with the letters T.O. embroidered in turquoise. Annie skipped over to the man and began pulling on his right sleeve. He glanced down over his horn-rimmed glasses, noticed her name tag, and said, That's a beautiful green dress you're wearing, Annie. What are you doing so far from home without your parents? Annie giggled and whispered, whispered Mister, I got lost. Do you know where you live, Annie? I forget. Annie, that's a very pretty name. I always thought if I had children, I would name my own little girl Annie. I bet she would even be as pretty as you. I haven't been lucky enough to have any kids of my own. I had a wife once, but... But what? She had to go away, Annie. Do you know what that means? Yeah. Grandpa Jason told me my parents had to go away, too. Oh, I'm so sorry. Do you know where they went, Annie? Did Grandpa tell you that, too? Yeah. He said they went to... 
to Europe for business. For business. Oh my, I thought they were... Um, never mind. Are you hungry, Annie dear? I'll take you home, feed you, and call your family. Yeah. Mister. Mister? Who are you? Where are my manners? Heaven to Betsy. Call me Uncle Tom. You know, you look a great deal like my wife. You have her nose and her hair. I imagine she would have liked you very much. She was only 19 when she had to go away. It was just after our honeymoon. That was almost 40 years ago, long before you were born. I was quite a looker in those days, Annie. You may not believe it, but old Uncle Tom could have been quite a ladies' man. I just couldn't be with anyone else after May. It wouldn't have been right. The pair continued traveling west, looking in the stores as they went. The street was busy on this Saturday afternoon, and no one paid them any heed. They passed Keith Dirks, a sword and gun shop, then paused in front of Chantal's bakery. Annie stared at the frosted treats in the glass display case as they slowly rotated round and round. Her stomach rumbled, and the old man promised to feed her when they made it to his place. On the corner of Maine and Fay, John's Book Emporium was having a signing by Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Willard Bumstead. The old man, whistling the Andy Griffith tune, led Annie into the bookstore and down the aisles. He grabbed the latest collections of poems by an obscure poet who went by the name Sav. He picked up the new Bumstead novel and stood in line to pay for his purchases and then to get the Bumstead signed. Well, Mr. Bumstead, can you sign my book? Make it out to Tom Odes, O-E-D-E-S. There, I have all 14 novels, your poetry and short story collections, and your comprehensive overview of the Trilestin religion. You're the best. Thank you, son. There you go. Next! Tom Odes gently placed his book inside his bag with the other and headed out the door with Annie in tow. As they went up North Fay Street, Tom had a huge smile plastered on his face and was walking with a quick light bounce. His tune changed from Andy Griffith to I Love Lucy, with several babaloos thrown in every so often. I love Lucy and she loves me. We're as happy as two can be. Sometimes we quarrel, but then how <laughs> we love making up again. Tom's house was a spacious log cabin situated on 45 acres of rocky terrain. 200 meters from the cabin was Fox River, a tributary of the larger Beaulieu. In the middle of the river was a small island growing lilac and dingleberry trees. The entire property was called Plumstead Grove and was surrounded by an immense stone fence. The area had been used as a fort in the War of 1812 and had been in Tom's family for over seven generations. At the northwest corner was a dilapidated hay barn surrounded by a weed-grown wheat field and rusted hulks that resembled ancient farm equipment. A beat-up jeep was parked beside the cabin, and the driveway was lined with large, whitewashed stones. The old man checked his mailbox for flyers and entered his home. He removed his loafers and golf hat and told Annie to sit at the kitchen table. He entered his thousand-plus book library and placed the new purchases on an enormous mahogany reading desk. He looked at the little girl, perched in the large kitchen armchair, and asked her what she would like to eat. Chocolate! Okay, but after you have some oatmeal. Gross! Do I have to... What would your Grandma June say if she knew I was feeding you chocolate before real food? How do you know Grammy's real name? Um, we conducted a little business about 40 years ago, that's why. Oh. After they had finished eating, cleared the table, and washed up, it was a quarter to five. Back at the Stewart farm, the hunt for Annie was in full progress. 984 people were combing the area and had been doing so for over an hour. Because the tract of land was 550 acres, they had split into teams of around 25, with each group leader given a walkie-talkie by the police who were searching the area on red and black four-wheelers. By 11 that night, the quest was expanded to other districts of the town. 
8 the next morning, they were looking in the nearby cities. The local radio and television stations were asking for help in the search for New Lambden's Little Lost Girl. A $10,000 reward was being offered for information leading to Annie's whereabouts. At 9.34 the morning after Tom had found Annie, the police came knocking at his front door. Rubbing the sleep from his eyes, he pulled on his fraying plaid housecoat and shuffled to the front entrance in his slippers. He peeked behind the yellow curtain and cracked the door. Ah, oh, good morning, Lieutenant Dave. Sorry to wake you, Tom. That's okay, I was up. What's going on? I'm surprised you haven't heard. The Stuart's granddaughter, Joanne, is missing. The investigation has been going on since five yesterday afternoon. It's all over the news. Really? I've been busy reading in my library. You know, I rarely watch the electric nipple or listen to the radio, David. Yeah, but if you do hear or see anything, let me know. Sure thing. Take care, Tom. I'll see you for lunch on Wednesday. For the next several weeks, the search for Annie continued almost nonstop. As time went on, people began to return to their regular routines, everyone except the Stewart family. When school started, the children were counseled about death and loss. The news reports slowly became less and less until they died away completely. Eight months after the ordeal began, life in New Lambden was as it had always been. Annie's file was left open and placed in the missing children section, with other unsolved cases going back over 35 years. One night, ten years after Annie disappeared, the old man headed into the basement. In the middle of the living room was a concealed entrance hatch under a large black bear rug. Underneath was a wooden floor panel that, once removed, led into the depths under the cabin. During the war, this space had been used to store munitions. After the fort was destroyed, the Odes family built their cabin over top the entranceway. For five years after his wife died, Tom renovated the original subterranean design and modified it completely. The first section consisted of a natural-looking basement. In one corner lay a workbench covered in dusty tools. In another corner, rotting firewood, cut years before, gave the room a light pungent odor. At the back of the basement, opposite the stairs, a wine rack filled with mostly empty bottles covered the entire wall. The enclosure was illuminated by a series of light bulbs attached to a cord and strung from one end to the other. After making it down the stairs, Tom traveled to the wine rack and removed a bottle of Dom Perignon 1962. As he did so, a hidden mechanism was released and a panel slid outwards from the wall, revealing a vast chamber. The two rooms were connected by a three-meter-long arch tunnel. The sound of dripping water echoed throughout the space, and small rivulets ran down the rough-hewn, jagged walls. The uneven floor held a vast array of contraptions. All types of exercise equipment could be found, from rowers to exercise bikes and trampolines to jumping ropes. In addition, there was a small library containing authors from Dr. Seuss to Plato. Around the table of the room was a series of red plastic doors. Each door led into a smaller room that had been a jail cell in the war. Behind these doors were Tom's captive, or what he liked to call his children. On this particular day, he wanted to visit his newest child, whom he believed was sent by May from heaven. Tom peered through a small window in the top of the door and a smiled at a boy of about six and a half. He unbolted the door and entered a small room, very similar to the other six occupied cells. Each one contained a vase of fresh-cut flowers, Lilacs for girls, dingleberry blossoms for boys, from the island in the Fox River. The walls were soundproofed by a soft yellow spongy-like material that covered the rock confines and retained heat. A bed was set on the left side of the cell opposite a small table and chair used for reading and eating. The beds were covered in bright fluorescent pillows and a grey hand-knit quilt. Attached to the walls were depictions of ancient landscapes and quotes from various philosophers and poets. Hi Luke, how's my boy on this fine Wednesday morning? I'm not yours! Take me home now. I see you're not eating your oatmeal. I wish you wouldn't throw your food around the room. You have to live here. And I really don't think you want to live in a sty. What do you think? Home, home, home. I want to go home. 
You know you can't do that, Luke. You live here now. My name is Greg. Don't call me Luke. Tom left the room and went to the next cell. Hi, Annie. How's my little niece doing today? Would you like your oatmeal and toast? Today's choice is between milk, apple, or orange juice. If you have apple, you get a slice of orange. And if you want orange juice, you can have a slice of apple. What if I want milk, Uncle Tom? Then you get to pick which one you want. Okay, I'll have apple juice. Tom made a circuit around the room asking each child what they desired. Linda, the first captive, who was now 53, wanted milk, as did Jenny, the second captive, and Tarina, the fourth. Nicole, the third captive, wanted apple juice, and Bill, the fifth captive, wanted only water. All the children were well integrated into their living habits, but Greg was not behaving as well as the others when they had entered this family. Tom returned to the boy to try to coax him to come out of his cell. He had remained there without leaving for the entire three-month stay. Come on, Luke, come out and play. You need to keep your muscles in shape. You're a growing boy. If I do, can I have cereal? No oatmeal. We'll see. That's a good boy. Go ride the exercise bike. Oh, you want to lift weights. I think they may be a little too heavy for you. Greg reached down, picked up a 10-pound dumbbell, and began lifting it. Tom checked the boy to make sure he was using the proper form. Suddenly, as Tom reached down, an ear-splitting crack echoed throughout the chamber as his body crumbled to the ground. A small stream of blood pooled around his head as he uttered a small groan. I'm not your boy! Greg ran from the man and out of the chamber. He passed through the tunnel into the main basement and ran up the steep stone steps. Once he was in the living room, he stopped. He did not know where he should go or what he should do. He plopped down on the bare rug and dozed off. Several hours later, there was a knock on the door. Tom, are you home? You missed our regular Wednesday lunch. Detective Dave Stewart cracked open the door and peered in the gloom. He stepped inside and looked around. Passing through the kitchen, he found himself staring at a small boy asleep on a black rug. He noticed the opening in the floor and went over to investigate. He looked at the boy as he went down the steps and realized it was the boy who had gone missing a short while ago. Dispatch, this is Detective Stewart. Over. <coughs> Dispatch, go ahead. Over. I'm at the Odes farm. I found the Glen boy. Send backup and paramedics now. Over. Backup and paramedics are on the way. Over. Hours later, Tom sat in the hospital bed, surrounded by police officers firing questions at him. A large bandage was taped over his right eye, extending to his ear. There was nothing he could say to make the men understand. He wasn't sure he understood anymore. How could he tell them that May sent him the children they had never had together? A trial was quickly convened after Tom Odes recovered and was released from the prison hospital. It was found that after his wife died, he slowly lost his grip on reality. The Odes shoe factory was falling apart without him at the helm, and the stewards bought him out. He retreated into his own world and started to populate it with his children. He bought tons of reading material to maintain a link to the outside world and made certain his children had the proper education, eating habits, and exercise routines. Greg had been the only child who had not adapted to life as a captive child. Eventually, after months of analysis, it was decided best to place the old man in a minimum security psychiatric hospital in nearby Mount Tremblay. The children, many of whom were in their 30s and 40s, were placed into a special home. However, they could not adapt to a way of thinking and living as free people outside the world of their uncle. Slowly, over the next few years, the oldest three died. It was only Trina, Bill, and Annie who managed to live a somewhat normal life after all they had known was taken away from them. Well, I guess that ends on a somewhat uh, depressing note. I'm not sure. What do you guys think of that? That was uh, my attempt at some kind of long-ish short story, uh, about nine or ten pages long. Um, I remember how I had a lot of fun putting it together. Uh, there was some, what would you call it? Uh, let me go back to the pages here. Writing by the teachers who graded me. Um, 
I got an A minus actually on my entire project, so that's not bad. Uh, and the story itself only had a few red marks on it, just to change some words and maybe some ordering of uh, sentences or whatnot. But it was a lot of fun to write, and I miss creative writing class. And if I could go back in time and be in university again and just take courses all the time, I think that's what I would do. Anyway, I wanted to give you guys something a little bit less... Uh, well, I was going to say depressing. I'm not sure if that story was depressing or not. Hope you don't think so. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, but life-wise, we needed a break, and that's what it was. So anyway, I'll be back for you next week, talking about other exciting things that have happened in my life or around the world. Who knows? It's hard to say. But until next time, take care. Have fun. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can always uh, go to the coffee account and send me a coffee. That's ko-fi.com slash rustedsoul. The link is on the website, soulforgepodcast.com, where you can uh, find all the social media links and uh, the place to review us on iTunes and that kind of stuff. I'd like to thank Timothy for this week's donation. It's unexpected, and it's greatly appreciated. Thank you, Timothy. But until next time, remember, things don't have to change the world to be important. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Soul Forge podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated, and we hope you'll tune in again next time. Remember that you can visit soulforgepodcast.com for all of our social media links, and don't forget to share the show with everyone you know. The Soul Forge podcast is your best source for living your best life. Think about it. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Thank you.